there's so much we can do here, um, but let's begin by reading Psalm 2 in the New American Standard text. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them that he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he may not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled, and how blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 can be divided into four neat sections of three verses each. It's not always that a psalm can be divided so easily. <laughs> Some have suggested that one way to remember the content of Psalm 2 is there are four different voices that speak. In verses 1 through 3, you see a picture of the nations in their rebellion to God. And they speak in verse 3, the nations, the kings, and their rulers, they say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The nations are speaking. In verses 4 through 6, the Lord is speaking. The Lord is unmoved by the threats of his opponents. In the Bible, he speaks in verse 6, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. In verses 7 through 9, the anointed, the Messiah speaks, the king speaks, and he quotes the decree of the Lord, saying, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Most of his section describes that speech. In verses 10 through 14, the narrator speaks. Excuse me, 10 through 12, 10 through 12, the narrator speaks as he calls the nations, the kings, the judges, and the nations to submission and homage to God. So verses 1 through 3, the nations plot rebellion. The Lord installs his king. 4 through 6, 7 through 9, the decree of the Lord. In verses 10 through 12, a warning to the nations to submit to 
to God and his king. This psalm is classified as a royal psalm. By that, I mean that it is a psalm that focuses on the human king. It focuses on the human ruler. There are several connections to Psalm 1. You may have noticed some of them. Some of them are very are, are, are clearer than others. Let me tell you one at first that's not as clear. Do you see in verse 1 the word translating devising in the New uh, American Standard Bible is translated devising. In the ESV, it is translated plot. But that word that is used in 2.1, translated plot, translated devising, uh, it is also translated plot in the NIV. That is the same Hebrew word that is translated meditates in Psalm 1 verse 2. And so the Bible is drawing an important contrast. In Psalm 1, the blessed man meditates, plots, devises on the law of the Lord. That is his consideration. That is his plan. That is his thought. Those are his ideas. While on the other hand, in 2.1, the rebellious nations are devising, meditating, plotting rebellion. Which do you plot? Rebellion to God, ways to do wrong, or ponder and plot and meditate on the law of God. Another comparison between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, in Psalm 1 verse 6, we were told the way of the wicked will perish. In Psalm 2.12, we are told uh, that uh, you need to do homage to the Son or kiss the Son, lest you perish in the way. The same disaster comes to disobedient nations that comes to disobedient individuals. They will perish. So the word perish in 1.6 and the word perish in 2.12 is a connection. Another connection between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 Psalm 1 talks about the blessed man. Psalm 1 verse 1, blessed is the man. But the same word that opens Psalm 1 is near the close of Psalm 2. Notice how Psalm 2 says, blessed are all who take refuge in the Lord. One writer said it this way, that Psalm 1 is a laser focus on the individual. Psalm 2 is a wide-angle view of the nations. A laser focus on the individual in Psalm 1. Psalm 2, a wide-angle view of the nations and their rebellion to God. So those are just some faults on... Psalm 1, Psalm 2. Um, some of you may be thinking about this question. I, I anticipate this question. Were Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 intended to be one psalm? Um, there, there was some evidence of that. There are some texts 
of the book of Acts that quote Psalm 2-7. Some of the texts say that it was the first psalm. Most of it, though, say the second psalm. But I, I, I really think they are distinct psalms with distinct emphasis. But I do think we should look for the links between psalms. And they, there are many. Now, with that introduction, uh, let's read the psalm again from the ESV. The ESV. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. They will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, and blessed are all who take refuge in him. That first section of the psalm, verses 1 through 3, we find the nations, the kings of the earth, plotting rebellion against the Lord. The psalm opens with the word, why? That is not a unique opening to the psalm, to to a psalm. Psalm 10 opens the same way. Psalm 22 opens the same way, uh, or, or close to it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But this is the difference. Usually when the word why begins a psalm or is prominent in a psalm, The question is directed to God, and the writer doesn't understand God's activity or inactivity in the midst of all his problems. But this why is kind of directed to me, and it may be stated to God, but it's directed to me, and why? Are the nations in an uproar? He is astonished here at man's insane hostility to God. He cannot understand why man is so angry with God and man is so rebellious toward God. Why are the nations in an uproar? And I tell you, I see the same in our world, and I think our world has always been that way, that it seems like our world is on the verge of utter destruction. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? These are nations and peoples 
are kings and rulers in verse 2. Among these are the nations of the earth and the most powerful men within these nations. This is not an insignificant rebellion. It's not insignificant from the standpoint that there seems to be a worldwide conspiracy against God. But God is not intimidated by such. By the way, I gave you in some of the notes that I sent out, I gave you some cross-references to some of the key words. For example, the word vain, which is used here in verse 1 in the New American Standard, uh, the nations uh, the nations are devising a vain thing. You'll be benefited if you look up some of those passages where that word vain is used. For example, in Leviticus 26, those passages talk about the people uh, sowing their crops in vain. They will not be productive if they are disobedient to God. Or in Isaiah 30, verse 7, the fact that Egypt's help will be vain in the midst of the crisis of 701. So their plans are doomed to defeat before they've even began. Their plans are going to be destroyed. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now this word anointed is the Hebrew term from which we get the term Messiah. The term that is used in the Greek is Christ. Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek, carry the significance of the anointed one. In the Old Testament, prophets were sometimes anointed, like Elijah is told to anoint Elisha as a prophet. Prophets were anointed, priests were anointed, but particularly kings were anointed. And it is the king who is under discussion in verse 2. The kings of the earth, the, the rulers of the nations, are plotting rebellion against the Lord and against his anointing, against his Christ. And the Bible tells us that they are, that they say in verse 3, their voice speaks in verse 3, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Now again, I give you references to passages in your notes. And if you did not get those notes, then you feel free to to write us or text me personally because I know there are people outside this local congregation who are watching. Um, if you didn't, I'll try to get those to you. But those words, fetters and cords, show they view the service of God as a as slavery, as bondage from which they are longing to break free. For example... The word for cords in the New American Standard Bible, uh, those that is the word that's used 
for how the people of Judah bound Samson and handed him over to the Philistines in Judges 15, verses 13 and 14. And the text here tells us that the people are saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. Jeremiah 22, verse 20 is a parallel that I would encourage all of you to look up because that's very comparable to this verse right here. Jeremiah 2, verse 20. But these nations view bondage to the Lord or view service to the Lord as bondage and slavery from which they want to break free. What is God's response to this worldwide conspiracy against Him? What is God's response to this? In verse 4, He
But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy hill. The term holy hill is going to be used quite frequently of Zion throughout the book of Psalms. I give you some references in the notes. Zion was a very small city, very modest city in the midst of a relatively small kingdom. Yet the poet sees it as the center of God's design for his king and his world. He focuses on it as uh, his holy mountain on which he will enthrone his team. Now, let me ask you, any of you at this point have any questions on verses 1 through 6? Break 
them with a rod of iron, and you will shatter them like earthenware. A rod of iron is something strong. Pottery is fragile and can be broken. Jeremiah took a piece of pottery in Jeremiah 19 and threw it down, saying that the same way God would bring judgment on the city of Jerusalem. Jeremiah 19, particularly in Jeremiah 19, verse 11. In Isaiah 30, verse 14, the fragility of pottery is mentioned there. The passage says, whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's vessel. And so here you have the king ruling with a rod of iron, a rod often used for discipline, and this rod is made of iron. And the Bible says that you can, that he will shatter the nations like earthenware. In verse, so verses, we're going to come back, some of you may be thinking, there's more you can say about these verses. These verses are quoted in the New Testament. If you are thinking that, I'm glad they are. We're going to look at the psalm first, go through it, then pick out those, those passages and talk a little of that. In light of the fact that all of the nations bound together are no threat to God, that their resistance is futile, and God's reign is certain, that God has installed his king, and he will give his king all the nations of the earth. The only proper path to the nations is surrender and submission to God. In verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth. The kings, in verse 2, who were taking their stand, are now called to show wisdom, show understanding. We listen to this counsel. Worship with worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. And the word worship in verse eleven in the uh, New American Standard is translated uh, "sir" in the uh, ESV. And the NIV, to serve the Lord with reverence, to rejoice with trembling. We may not think of those two words together, rejoicing and trembling. But I would say that is a good way to describe our worship. We come together in joy before God. But we come together in awe of God. We serve the Lord with reverence, with a deep reverence, a deep respect, a deep awe of Him. And we rejoice. We tremble. We're joyous. We enter His courts with thanksgiving, His gates with praise. But He's not a frivolous thing. For we know we are in the presence of an awesome God. An awesome God who loves us. But an awesome God to whom we bow and before whom we rejoice.
Serve the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. Or as the ESV says, kiss the Son. Do you remember that the Bible talks in 1 Kings chapter 19, God says to Elijah, I have 7,000 knees that have not bowed to Baal, nor mouths that have kissed him. To kiss someone was to indicate your submission to them. Uh, that's stated in that passage in 1 Kings, also in Hosea 13, verse 2. And even in the book of Psalms, we see the rulers bowing down and licking the dust, kissing the dust before the kings of Israel in Psalm 78, Psalm 72, excuse me, Psalm 72, verses 8 through 11. The path of resistance is futile. It is vain, as verse 1 has shown us. It's vain. It is empty. It will lead to perishing in verse 12. But how blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 1 opens with the word blessed. Psalm 2, near the close, stresses that same word, blessed. Now let me first ask you, question. Yes. Um, in verse 9, uh, my Bible has a little comment about it, but is there any connection with the idea of you shall break them with the rod of iron and what the nations say in verse 3 of let us break the, uh, their bonds in pieces? Okay. Uh, it, is, it is a different word for uh, break in those passages, okay? Um, um, it's a different word. Um, this is what I was anticipating, Micah. I'm going to answer what I was thinking you were going to ask. Do you have a note that you shall rule them with the rod of iron? Okay, yes. that would be the reading of the Greek text there. The reading of the Hebrew text is you shall break them with a rod of iron. Some of the New Testament passages quote that as shepherd them or rule them, uh, quoting from the Septuagint. But it is a different Hebrew word for the word rule. I, I think the, I think you're still doing well to make that connection where one, they want to throw off the rule of God and break his fetters and God's going to have his king rule with a scepter of iron. I do think there's a connection. Uh, I'm not denying there's a connection. I didn't mean to sound that way. I have just, I'm just stating it's not the exact same word. But I think that's a good point to make. Okay? I have a question or a comment. Yes. Um, on that same verse, because it just occurred to me, because that's the way my brain works. So... It's sort of like uh, back in Genesis 
where certain a serpent's head's going to be crushed and a heel's going to be bruised in that God can shatter the nations with his um, iron rod and the best that they can do is shake off his chains at least temporarily so just another random comment no that's not a random comment it's a, it's a good thought in Genesis 3 uh, like you say you know, for a while they'll, they'll bite at your heel but eventually your head's going to be crushed and so that is that is a, a good point of comparison um, to with what Sarah said I, I was thinking I was when she said Genesis, the first thing I thought of. Remember how the nations conspire in a sense at Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, and that they are going to make a name for themselves. They're going to build this tower that reaches to the heavens, and the and Lord comes down to see the tower they they, they built. Any time man gathers together in rebellion to God like that. Genesis 11 shows us the type, the kind of way it will end with God being victorious. But no, those are both very good thoughts. Very good comments. I appreciate that. Um, Do you recognize, and I'm trusting a lot of you do, if not all of you, uh, do you recognize how frequently Psalm 2 is quoted in the New Testament? Uh, it is quoted repeatedly. Uh, those lines in verse, uh, the line in verse seven, "You are my son." When does the father say to the son, "You are my son," or "You are my beloved son"? At his baptism, at his transfiguration. These words are quoted. You are my son. God declares him that at the baptism, at the transfiguration. And Acts 13.33 says he declares that to be true at the resurrection as well. But before I get there, let me ask you a question. I want to ask you, and maybe I should preface this. Be careful, because this is a trick question. What point in Israel's history would you say that they exercised the kind of worldwide dominion that Psalm 2 speaks of? When did Israel exercise the dominion? You just ask of me verse 8, and I'll give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession, and you will break them with a rod of iron. At what time did Israel say that? Okay? I see I, I, I don't see many texts, but I saw something that popped up there. Someone made a good guess. Solomon Solomon. Some of you, how many of you would guess David? Any of you guess David there? Okay? What I said earlier, it's a trick question. David and Solomon were the closest Israel ever came to this. 
They were the closest Israel came. They were kings who ruled over the small nations around them, the Moabs and the Edoms and nations like that. But there was never a time in the Old Testament story when Israel was the most powerful nation on earth, like Assyria was in their day, like Babylon was in Nebuchadnezzar's day. There was never a time like that. This psalm prophesies of that. And yet, that prophecy is not fulfilled in all those kings from the line of David. You find this same kind of prophecy of universal dominion, of worldwide power, in Psalm 72, in verses 8 through 11. Psalm 72, verses 8 through 11. You will also rule from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth, let the nomads of the desert bow before him, and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents, and the kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. Let all kings bow down before him, and all nations serve him. Not only is it not true that Israel is never the nation in the Old Testament, but their kings, the last few kings, die in, uh, in very humiliating ways. Jehoahaz was king in 609 B.C. He's captured by the king of Egypt and taken down into Egypt and dies there as a slave. Then you have Jehoiakim, who dies in 598 B.C. And I've always wondered if he had help in dying. I've wondered if he was killed by the Babylonians or killed by his own people. Then you have Jehoiachin, 597 B.C., who was taken and captive in Babylon, and he lives the rest of his life as a slave there. And then the last king of Judah is Zedekiah. Zedekiah, who is captured by Babylon, his sons are killed while he helplessly watches, and then his eyes are put out. Those are the last four kings of Judah. Does that sound like this promise Ask of me, and I will give the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. Because these psalms, one of the reasons, because these psalms do not find an ultimate fulfillment in the kings of Judah, it, it led Israel to reevaluate how they looked at these psalms. And I'm saying, if they didn't look at them this way from the beginning, it leads them to think about these psalms in light of the king that is to come, the Messiah who is to come, who is going to rule all nations, that it led them to focus their hopes on the future, on this ruler, this Messiah who is to come. Psalm 2 is a psalm about the human king, promises that were never completely fulfilled in the Old Testament but they point to one who will fulfill them. Now, we can go on a long time about that, and we're going to say more about that later. But let's look at some specific passages in the New Testament that reference Psalm 2. Look at Acts 4. Acts 4. In Acts 4, 
gospel of Pentecost. More were being added to their number day after day. In Acts 3, they continue to grow so that by Acts 4, verse 4, the number of men has reached 5,000. But because they are growing so, the Sadducees become jealous and persecute them. They threaten them and tell them not to speak in the name of Jesus. I want you to notice how when the disciples pray to God in Acts 4, they quote Psalm 2. In Acts 4, verse 25, Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why do the Gentiles rage, and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. I want you to notice that verses 27 and 28 apply the wording of Psalm 2, 1 and 2 to Jesus' crucifixion. Notice the psalm speaks in verse 26 of the kings of the earth and their rulers being gathered together. But notice in verse 27, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel just as the kings of the earth and their rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ so Pilate and Herod and the Gentiles and Jews all gathered together against Jesus Jesus Notice Christ is called in verse 27, you're anointed. That is the verb form of that word Christ used in verse 26. They're gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And it said, against your servant Jesus whom you anointed. The point is, Herod, Pilate, and the people of his day fulfilled the words of Psalm 2, 1 and 2 by crucifying Jesus and treating him this way. But still, God was going to install his king upon Zion, his holy hill. As Paul preaches in Acts 13 in the synagogue at Antioch of Pisidia, God has fulfilled this promise to our fathers and that he raised up Jesus as it is written the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Acts 13.33 says that the words of this psalm are fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. So it may be that the nations conspire and gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. But God raised Jesus and says, You are my son. Today I have forgotten you. And a lot of the language of ruling the nations with a rod of iron is too found in the Bible. Look in the book of Revelation. 
In Revelation 12, Revelation 12, verse 5, she gave birth to a male child who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Where's that concept come from? It comes from Psalm 2. She gives birth to a male child who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was called up to his throne. Look at Revelation 19 and verse 15. Revelation 19 and verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. He will rule them with a rod of iron. Revelation 12, 5. Revelation 19, 15. Pick up on the words of Psalm 2, 9, and show they find ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. But there is at least one more reference to this rod of iron in the book of Revelation. Look at Revelation 2, 26 and 27. Revelation 2, 26 and 27. This is the letter to the church at Thyatira. He who overcomes and who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And as vessels of the potter, the vessels of the potter are broken, as I also have received authority from my Father. I want to tell you what's really interesting to me. In Revelation 2, 26 and 27. In these verses, it is not Jesus who is to rule all nations with the rod of iron. But it's those who follow Jesus. To them I will give authority over the nations. To whoever is faithful. To whoever overcomes. To him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. It's taking the language of Psalm 2 and verse 9 and applying it to all those who believe in Jesus. There's a passage in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12 that says if we endure with him, we shall also reign. He rules all nations with a rod of iron, and we will share in that victory. We will rule them with a rod of iron. I don't know what that looks like, or exactly how that will be fulfilled, but I think the main message is clear. The main message is, if we submit to the Son, kiss the Son, who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. If we do that, we will share 
in his reign. Guys, if you have more questions, we'll give you a chance in just a second to ask. Feel free to look at those notes. I think you'll always benefit by examining the cross-references and looking at them, seeing if they can give you additional insight to passages. I know sometimes I give you, on some passages, I just give you a couple of scriptures. On others, I pile up every one. I understand that. Uh, but uh, as much as you can look up and think through those verses, I think you'll be benefited by it. Any questions you have? Any ideas? Hey, Tommy? Yes? Um, is there any correlation? Is it the same word in verse 12 when it says, kiss the son, to the idea in the New Testament when it talks about greeting each other, greet one another with a holy kiss? Is there a similarity there, or is that totally different? Well, uh, you know, of course, the Old Testament, this would be written in Hebrew and the New Testament Greek. I, I did not, I have not checked my see if the word of the Septuagint is the same. I'll try to check that. Um, I, 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 I think there is a little difference from this respect. Uh, in this, in, in this psalm, it is showing submission to God. It is submission, is a mark of submission, it's a mark of bowing before Him. In the New Testament references that you mentioned, like a Romans 16, 16, and I think it's 2 Corinthians 13, 12 through 14, somewhere in there. But it's a sign of mutual affection. Um, and, and, and with God, it's more, so, so I would make that distinction, Mike. But, but I, yes, I, I understand your point. And I did not check. I, I'll try to check up for you whether that's the same word. Tommy, I don't know how much this would help, but my, my Bible has a comment that verse 12, the Septuagint reads, embrace discipline, which points to the submission and paying homage to the Son. There uh, are some questions. As far as how to translate these verses from ancient versions and things like this. And so there, there are, if you really get into Psalm 2 and read a lot of commentaries, you'll find in verse 12 there are different uh, arguments made as to how it should best be translated. Um, I think the argument for, I think it, it was one writer who I saw Micah made a pretty good argument for the translation kiss. Let me let me make a point here. And, and, and Micah spurred this on. It's not really the same question he's asking, but he's, but, he, but his thoughts spurred this to me. And just let me ask you to think, because this, for example, it says kiss the sun or do homage to the sun in most of your translations. Some argue that we should we should look at that verse totally differently. And, and, and Micah has some suggestions there in his footnotes because the word "son" is actually the Aramaic term for son. 
is not the Hebrew term for son. And they say, why would he use the term son in verse 7 in Hebrew and then in verse 12 in Aramaic? But this is a point I found interesting. And I hope I can explain this in a way to help. In verse 7, that passage seems to be directed more to the king as the king is saying that God said to me, you are my son. Verses 10 through 12 are an address to the nations of the world to submit to the son. In much of the history of the ancient Near East, the diplomatic language was Aramaic. And so it may be because he's addressing the king the descendant of David, or David, in verse 7. He uses the Hebrew term for son. And in verse 12, because he's addressing the nations, telling them to submit to God's ruler, that he uses the language uh, Aramaic, which was a language that was often known far and wide in ancient Greece. The Micah that did not address all the questions you asked, I'm sorry about that, but but all of that's kind of tied together. And um, if you all want to read some more on that, I can give you some things to look at. Okay. Anything else, guys? Kind of an odd question again. Uh-huh. Um, so back in Acts 4, when we yeah. have gathered against Jesus... Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel. Are there any other instances, say, in Israel's history where, like, everybody was gathered against them? I'm just looking for parallels. Okay. Uh, Yes. It is a common prophetic picture. Uh, It is a common picture in the Old Testament to see all nations gathered against Jerusalem against God's people. Let me give you some references. Psalm 46 and 48 are examples of that. Psalm 46, Psalm 48 are examples. Isaiah 29, verses 1 through 8 is an example of that. Uh, Ezekiel 37 and 38 are examples of that. Micah 4.11, the Micah 5 verse 1, an example. Uh, Zechariah 12 and Zechariah 14 are examples. And so let me go through those again. Psalms 46 and 48. 46 and 48. And those are easy to remember because they're almost together in the alphabet. 46 48. I meant that to be funny, so I hope you're laughing with your mute button. No. Okay? Then, then, Isaiah 29, the first eight verses. Isaiah 29, 1 through 8. Ezekiel 37 and 38 have that picture. Excuse me. Excuse me. Isaiah, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Ezekiel 38 and 39. Had that picture. Um, Micah 4, beginning in verse 11, 
has that picture Zechariah uh, 12 and 14. So, yes, Sarah, there are many passages that show that kind of activity. And I think we also see it in the days the Assyrians attacked Israel in Hezekiah's time in 701. So, those would be some examples. So, yes, it is a very, very common picture. Okay. So Tommy, back in Psalm eighty-nine. Yes. That really stuck out to me. I will make I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth. Um, sometimes I cringed a little bit talking about Jesus as the firstborn because some of the some of my friends who think that he's just a man um, will use that kind of idea. Um, yeah. But this this looks like to me the idea like with Jacob that all the blessings of the firstborn were given to to someone else. You know, not, not the physically firstborn, but, and that all authority then is granted, whether to the king or to Jesus as king. Later. Yes. So in Psalm 89, 26 and 27, he defines firstborn there, as, as Anne Marie said. He defines it. I will make him my firstborn, What's that mean? The highest of the kings of the earth. Now, in Psalm 89, there's no question that's what he means. And like you say, some people look at Hebrews 1.6, where Christ is called the firstborn, and some people think, aha, he's created. He's not creator. I would suggest, when speaking of Christ as the firstborn in Hebrews 1.6, it is a reference to this idea that he is the highest of the kings of the earth. That's what's being uh, stressed. So, um, thank you. Yes, I think that I, I think that I can understand how that language of Christ being the firstborn could be a stumbling block to some. How some could take it as being a created being, but just look at the use of that term throughout Scripture. Look at it, look at how it's used, and look at how Christ is unquestionably shown as creator and not part of the creation in John 1, 1 through 3, in Colossians 1, 15 through 18. Okay, very good, guys. Very good. I appreciate you joining with us in the class. I hope it's been helpful to you. This is a great song. We did not do it justice. I did not do it justice. It is great beyond my ability to describe. But may it create a longing in our heart for this king who is to rule all nations. And he's ruling right now. But his rule is not all that it is going to be. For one day, 